Welcome to the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ, located in the Lehigh Valley of Pennsylvania. I'm Pastor Mike Landsman, and these podcasts are taken from my weekly Sunday morning sermons. We pray that they will bless you, and we would love for you to come visit us and make our church home, hopefully, become your church home. Here's what we have for today. Let's open with a prayer. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. So the passages that we've heard today, I'm going to focus a little bit, I think, more on the Revelation passage, uh, chapter 21. And in that passage, John is nearing the end of the series of visions that were given to him. And in it, we see the ultimate consummation of all things, the goal to which we have all been struggling and eagerly anticipating. And for Christians, this is what we've been eagerly waiting for. And in the John reading, Jesus told them that where he is going, in John, Jesus had told them previously, he's like, I'm going to go somewhere and you're not going to be able to come. But what I love about these texts in Revelation is that we see where Jesus has gone, and we see that where he's gone is actually coming to us. And during the Easter season, we talk a lot about the resurrection. We talk about how the Christian hope is not disembodied life in heaven somewhere. What we see here is the fulfillment of everything the cross and the empty tomb promise us, union with with God. Where we could not follow comes to us, Heavens descend upon the earth, transforming the old creation into new creation, into the fullest realization that begun with the advent of Jesus Christ. And so let's take a look at some of the lessons we can learn from this heavenly city. So in in verse 2, John says, I saw the holy city coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So most of us here are married, right? Or maybe we have been married or we're in a relationship. How many of you have been married before or are currently married? Okay. When we get married, we generally like to plan it out. Some people like to elope and, you know, run to Vegas and have Elvis marry them. But most people, they plan it out. When Chante and I got married, she planned, she planned a lot. She was really good at it, and she did a really amazing job of putting something together that was respectful of what we had while also being as beautiful as she could make it. And not only that, it also re- was reflected in, in what she wore. The space where we had the reception was beautified. Like in the space where we had our reception was at our old church in the youth room. Right? So normally there's TVs and sofas, and it looks like a youth room, but they put a lot of work into decorating it and making it look beautiful so that when we went down there, we weren't stepping into the youth room. We were stepping into a beautiful space where we could dance and eat and be glad. My point is, is when we get married, we recognize the underlying beauty 
of the sacrament of marriage. And, and with that in mind, the text says that the city is coming down adorned like a bride. The city is prepared. It is richly decorated. It is dazzlingly bright and blindingly beautiful, just like our own weddings reflect that too, with the decor and with when the bride walks down the aisle in her wedding gown. The city is prepared for something. It is prepared for someone. And we see what that is in verse 3. It says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. The city is being prepared for God and humanity to dwell together. To dwell together in our true home. This is our true home. One of my closest friends is the son of missionaries. And as a result of his parents' ministry, he and his siblings moved around the United States and the outlying territories of the United States countless times. My parents are also in the ministry and when I was a child and a teenager, we moved several times in my life from the west coast of the United States to the middle of the United States to the uh, east coast of the United States. And then I went overseas and then I came back and then I went down and I came up. I moved around a lot. And our society reflects that. We are an increasingly mobile society. And, and oftentimes we feel as if we don't have a home that's ours, particularly now because families used to tend to live together in a certain area. And you can even see that reflected in our cemetery, right? And, and families who may even, uh, there's a, I did a funeral last year of somebody who has some family burial plot over here. They were living in another state and when they passed away, they brought their remains all the way from that other state to here so they could rest with their family members. But nowadays, we don't really, we don't really have that sense of, of home or community. We don't feel like we belong anywhere. The Bible refers to this in Hebrews 13, 14. It says, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek this city that is to come. So essentially, brothers and sisters, we are in the world, but we are not of the world because we have been united with Christ. So our true home this is not the one that we go to after work or after church. Our true home is hidden with Christ in heaven. And it's awaiting its full revealing at the end of time. And that's what we get a picture of here. God, where God dwells, is descending. And God and humanity dwell together, united together. This is the language of fulfillment, of belonging, that the maker of all things deigning to come and dwell with those he has created. And this is what makes the heavenly city our true home, the presence of God there and our direct experience in it. And then in verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eye. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This <laughs> this sounds like a little bit too good to be true, you know? But the good thing is, it, it actually is, it is true. It, it, it's, 
when we read something like that or we hear something like that, you might think of your mind of that Australian guy, right, who, who, who comes on your TV and he's like, I have this magic soap right here. And uh, if you got wine on the carpet, it'll scrub it right off. Uh, you throw it on your car, it'll like take all the scratches away. And if your light is shattered, just throw it and it'll, magic, it'll make more glass and your light will be completely fixed, right? All this over-promising. So you buy it and you're like, this is great. So you spill some wine on the floor and you put the soap on it that you saw the guy advertise on TV and you scrub it and then it, the wine stain is still there because the product doesn't work that way because, you know, that's, it's not able to do what the guy says it's going to be able to do. So when we hear promises like this, we kind of think that in our minds, like our, in our minds, really? Really? That can't be. But brothers and sisters, it is. It is true. If God is dwelling with humanity together for eternity, then that means that everything that caused us to suffer is done away with. We experience the ultimate of God's love and God's comfort with our tears being wiped away. And St. Paul wrote that God comforts us in our troubles so we can turn and be a comfort to others who are suffering. And here we see that comfort fully realized. As God wipes away our tears, that means there's no more reason to cry. All has been made new. All has been redeemed. Death shall be no more. And we live in this weird time between the times. Jesus, through his death, has destroyed death but we still have to go through the experience of death because he did. And we've all lost family and friends that we care about. And many of us have shed tears for those whom we loved who have departed this life. But now we see here death has finally been dealt with completely. And that means then there's no point for mourning. There's no reason for mourning. There's no reason for crying. There's no reason for pain because all of the things that cause us suffering are no more. They have passed away. Death right now is working its way through all of us, but we have this beautiful hope that it no longer will hold sway over us one day because the former things have passed away. So this city sounds amazing and it's a wonderful metaphor for our life in eternity with God, but we should also be aware of some troublesome ways that people have interpreted and understood these passages. And so we're going to talk, I'm going to throw a couple of big words out at you, but I'm going to, I'm going to define them, so don't worry. The first way that we misunderstand this, this city and, and what we're about to receive as Christians is over-realized eschatology. Over-realized eschatology. A theologian named Carson defines this term as thinking that you have more of the blessings from the future now than what you actually do. Does that make sense to everybody? So when you say your eschatology is over-realized, that means you're taking something from the future, a promise to be fulfilled in the future, and you're applying it too much in our own present day and time. Does that make sense? Okay, good. No one said anything, so that means you're all getting it. Perfect. Shelly, hand out the quizzes. All right. Okay. So one of the easiest ways to understand this idea of over-realized eschatology is the prosperity gospel, right? So preaching against the prosperity gospel can sometimes feel like beating a dead horse. 
But we can never hear enough against it, I think. And in the faith traditions, right, which is the seedbed from which the prosperity gospel comes from, there was this desire to see miraculous works in Scripture uh, in our everyday lives. But they went too far because what they did was these, these promises that we have for healing, for wholeness, that we get a glimpse of right now that God in His goodness and graciousness does give us sometimes, they took those promises for the future and they applied it all to be experienced right now. This is incorrect. That means it is over-realized. The second error is under-realized eschatology. And again, the theologian Carson defines this one as not appreciating what we actually do have in our possession right now. So let's think about what we do have in our possession in the here and now. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became human, was crucified and raised for us. Humanity has been redeemed. God has forgiven our sins. Death has been defeated. We have the sure hope that God will fulfill His promise to us as declared through His Son. That salvation has been extended to everyone from every nation. And we heard that in the reading from the book of Acts this morning, where Peter was called to the carpet because some people didn't like who he went to share the gospel with. And Peter said, God showed me that the good news of Jesus is for everyone. What is promised for us isn't just for our little group but it's for those outside of our group, so we need to go to them. What else has God done for us? God has reconciled us to himself. God has reconciled us with one another. God has shown us his great love, brothers and sisters. This is the very definition of extravagant grace, and this is what we have right now. But we underrealize that when we forget it, or when we neglect it, or living as if, that doesn't matter. Overrealized, underrealized. And the last error when we look at the heavenly city is that there's a belief that any work that we do here and now, we are actually building that kingdom. That city is representative of the kingdom of God. So anything that we do here now on this earth, we are actually building God's kingdom here. And this manifests itself in two different ways, okay? The first way is the theological, people on the more theological left side of the spectrum. They believe that they are building God's kingdom through, through good works, through social justice, through acts of charity and kindness, that are acts of protest and activism, that that will transform the world into God's kingdom. And then on the other side, which it's the, second, it's the flip side of the same coin, on the more, on the more extreme right-wing side of, 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 of certain theological groups, there's this theology called dominion theology that we have to take back specific sectors of culture for Jesus, media, arts, religion, business, etc. This is called dominion theology because when we do that, that will then build the kingdom of God on earth and then Jesus will return. And both of these points of view are wrong. And they're both opposite sides of the same coin that reflect more of the, the early 20th century myth of progress than it does what Scripture teaches us. 
Right in the early 20th century, there was this idea that science and, uh, will, and logic and everything will make the world a continually better place. That progress will help us to evolve as a culture, as a species, as a people. And we will ourselves work to the day where we will make peace in the world and everything will be great. World War I quickly destroyed that idea, as did World War II. And all of the countless wars that have followed since then have put that idea to bed, but that idea still expresses itself in religious circles, both on the theological left and on the theological right. What we need to remember, brothers and sisters, is that God is building his kingdom, not us, right? The Bishop N.T. Wright, he puts it as we are building for the kingdom. We are not building God's kingdom, we are building for the kingdom. God still brings the kingdom to us but we are working for that. Now, all of this doesn't mean that we do not work for peace. It doesn't mean that we don't work for justice in the world. We do, but our work is tempered with the understanding that no human endeavor will bring about the restoration of all things. There's nothing we can do to hasten that. There's nothing that we can do to make it happen sooner. It will all be done in God's good timing. So today as we think about the lessons from the heavenly city, be comforted with the promise that God will, humanity will one day dwell together. And we have a foretaste of that, right? When we are in Christ, we are reconciled with God and we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit. So God, in a sense, is already dwelling with us, in us. And he's dwelling, and that gets expressed when we come to gather and worship here at church. So in some ways, we've already had that experience, but we're waiting for that ultimate realization. And so ho hopefully, brothers and sisters, when we feel those moments of loss, when we feel those moments of, of, of sadness, of despair, we can look forward to an anticipation of the day when all of that sadness will be done away with, when all of our tears will be wiped away, and when all things will be made new. And so to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, be all glory together with the Father who is from everlasting and is all holy, good, and life-giving spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. If these sermons have been a blessing to you, I'd ask that you would take a few minutes and go to a GoFundMe we've set up, gofundme.com slash savezionstone. We are fundraising in order to give our building some much-needed repairs, and anything you'd be able to donate to us greatly appreciated. You can also find us online, zionstoneucc.com. You can also find us on Facebook, zionstoneucc. Uh, if you could also go to iTunes and rate this five stars, that would help with our visibility. And you can also listen and share this podcast on Spotify as well. Once again, thanks for listening and God bless you.